Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. On the anniversary of George Floyd's death in the United States, it was a great pleasure to speak with Dr. Ron Wyatt, who makes the diagnosis of institutionalized racism as a root cause of many of healthcare's problems, not only in the United States, but around the world. It's an honor to bring you Dr. Ron Wyatt. You're very, very welcome to the show, Ron. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. And I know that you are a physician. So I want to start our conversation there. How did you end up in medicine? And what has been your journey in that field? First, just thank you for for inviting me to be with, with you today. And it's just really a pleasure. My beliefs about where I came from have evolved. I was born in Selma, Alabama, which I think for people around the world would know the significance of Selma, Alabama. So I was born in Selma, Alabama, grew up nearby in a rural place that, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to say it, it's, it's called the Black Belt in Alabama. It's, it's for me comparable to the outback, right? That's a remote, rural, dirt road, no indoor plumbing, no indoor heating other than a fireplace. I and my family went to clinics, public health clinics, for eye exam, dental screenings, immunizations. Uh, we really didn't have what you would think of as continuous health care. The, the clinics were segregated by race. At the time, Black people, then known as Negroes, could not even get an appointment. Then, like now, there are few Black physicians. So I'm going to say that me and my family, for this country of First Nations. I'm three generations removed from slavery, from from my descendants who were slaves and what they had to endure in this country. So I I, I talk about this because because of where we are right now. Uh, and, And when we talk about the pandemic and we talk about social distancing as a way to decrease the chance of a pandemic spreading, what I say to people is, the pandemic for me and my people, the, the, the First Nations Black people in America started over 400 years ago. And, and I describe that as the essence of social distancing. When someone chains you in a, in a slave ship and sends you across the ocean, that is social distancing on steroids. That is when, you know, I would say the original pandemic began. So when we talk about, well, the pandemic has hit essential workers as a First Nations Black person in America, you know, I will say we have been the quintessential essential workers since the slave ships first hit uh, in the Dominican Republic. That was when the first genocide started. That was when the value of a slave as a piece of property and whatever happened to that property subsequent to that became a system a system that evolved into what we will call racism. So where I grew up in the Black Belt, there was no regular health care. A couple of events triggered me more than any others. One was when I was fairly young, probably preteen, and and we got the story of a a mother who took her son, a young Black uh, mother who took her son to a local general practitioner, GP, about 18 miles from where we lived. He had a laceration. The GP sutured the laceration. When the mother said, I don't have any money to pay you today, but can I pay you along? 
which meant kind of pay you a little bit this week, a little bit next week. Sometimes people brought in baked goods or, or vegetables, and it was a barter type system. But in this case, the physician removed the sutures because she could not pay. The mother then took that child to a veterinarian in the same town. The veterinarian resutured the wound and didn't charge her. The next was when I was first year in college, and you can read about this in the Institute for Healthcare Improvements white paper that I helped write. My uncle, black man in his late 50s, uneducated, poor, uninsured, got sick one day. I was there with him, home from college. He got sicker as the day went by. There was no phone. There was no cell phone. There was no way to communicate how sick he was, although my great aunt knew he was sick that morning and she had to get transportation to town, as we called it, to do the the Saturday's shopping and come back. By the time she got back, he was very sick. We took him 30 miles to the nearest clinic, again, segregated by race. So the white general practitioner would see his white patients. He would see the black patients uh, as he could. He would work them in, as we call it today. This was a clinic where he had a black assistant. He wouldn't touch a black body. He had a separate stethoscope. She would hold it in his ears and move it where he wanted it moved because he could not touch us and then go and touch a white person in Alabama. So by the time he saw my uncle, he said, I can't help him. You have to take him to Selma, to the hospital, which was 60 miles away. We, we got him there. He was admitted. I had to go back to school the next day, University of Alabama. And a few hours after I got there, I got a call from his sister-in-law, my other great aunt. And she said these words, Tom's dead. And I said, what do you mean he's dead? He's dead. And I said, what happened? She said, I don't know. A doctor never saw him. Now, let's fast forward. Those two were triggering events for me to speak the way I speak today. But fast forward to about five years ago, when just by happenstance, I talked to a person at the University of Alabama School of Medicine where I graduated. And she asked me, I began to tell her a story. She asked me, it was a white woman. She said, are you Tom Cannon's grandson? And I said, how would you know that? She said, because of where you're from and the story you're telling, my husband's great aunt lived near Tom. And she would always say he had a grandson that was a physician, but we thought she had dementia and nobody believed her. There's no way a black guy could leave a dirt road in the outback in Alabama and become a physician. They thought it was dementia. So, but she said that her, her husband's aunt insisted that Tom Cannon never should have died the way he died. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? She said, he died from sepsis from a ruptured appendix and a physician never came in to see him. They only gave him what back then they called life water. And in, in our culture, we would call IV fluids life water, which was always a bad sign for a black person to go into a hospital in the outback in Alabama. If you got life water, your days were numbered because that was about all you were going to get. OK, so then fast forward. Those were the events that drove me to never give up on being in medicine uh, and speaking out about this when I had the opportunity. I became the first black chief resident at St. Louis University, a Catholic Jesuit institution in St. Louis. I became chief resident. The day I became chief resident, one of my attending physicians, we call him, I think, in the British system, consultant, senior consultant. When I was named chief resident, I was the first African-American chief resident at St. Louis University Hospital, the oldest hospital in the U.S. 
west of the Mississippi River. He walked up to me and said, Ron, yes, sir. He said, what would my daddy think? And I said, sir, I, I don't know your dad. He said, well, my daddy said to me, we would never have a Negro chief resident at this hospital. Fast forward again to to about 2015, when I found out just by happenstance, again, and I will call it Providence, that his dad had been chairman of medicine at that hospital, which I didn't know. So those were the events that have driven me. It drove me to to working in inner city clinics in St. Louis and here in Alabama, where I I am now. So those were the, the drivers, my history of coming from the outback uh, to being being able to step out front, as as some people call it here, uh, it's unusual for a black man to step out front and not have to go through the back door. So my experiences have empowered me to not seek to go out the back door on these topics that are critical to your point globally for people that are of color, black and brown people, First Nations people. I went and we had the same problems uh, and we have the same problems, if not worse, in Canada. The Maori people in New Zealand. I, I have friends in Queensland and the, the justice movement there and the speaking out about racism that's happening right there in Queensland right now in the Tory Islands. So, so all of these things have begun to converge. And we reached this moment where the, the few of us say, no more. So I'm going to pause there for a second and uh, I could go on. <laughs> What you're describing is an affront to humanity. The behavior of the physicians who would take sutures out of a child, the behavior of a physician who would not attend somebody who was critically ill, those are an affront to humanity. We can agree on that. In 2021, 400 years later, from the first ship arriving in the Dominican Republic, what does it look like to you today? Yeah. Sadly, we have not come far. Sadly, the the data tells us that the sutures are still not being removed or being torn out. When you look at, and it's global, but look in the U.S., just at the, the maternal mortality rate for black and brown women who, who die from complications of high blood pressure and hemorrhage. The, the numbers are the same and in some places worse in the U.K. and the same or worse in Canada. So if we look at the data, we say not only are the sutures being taken out, at this point, we have to stop the bleeding because the sutures aren't even getting put in. When you look at just the risk-adjusted mortality rate for black and brown people pre-COVID, you know, people here like to talk about COVID and, and black and brown people dying around the globe. But as I say to people, the canary in the coal mine was gasping for breath in black and brown communities before COVID. There is no surprise here that, to your point, black and brown communities, and you can stratify it by geocodes, by zip code, and it will tell you exactly what you just said. These communities, these populations have been devalued and dehumanized for generations. So we don't have a surprise when people say, oh, my goodness, we didn't know the system was designed and structured and institutionalized for the harm to be done that we know and we knew was happening. We already knew that marginalized people, marginalized communities were already impacted by less resources. There were, in fact, institutional plans and policies to undersupply marginalized communities pre-COVID. 
So don't come to me then and say, we didn't know. You knew that these hospitals didn't have supplies, didn't have medications, didn't have equipment, didn't have the staffing that they needed. We That data already existed. There's no surprise here. So I say we have been bleeding for over 400 years. The, the, the First Nations people in Canada when I visit, there is no such thing as a post-colonial Canada. There's no such thing as a post-racial U.S. We have to stop the death, stop the dying, stop the bleeding, stop the injury, and stop the harm, all of which is preventable. And then we have to go to, and I'm a patient safety expert by training, we have to get to the root causes. And I'll tell you, based on the data, this is a bitter root, and a bitter root grows deep, and it's harder because it, it... it begins to spread and dig deep and doesn't want to be removed. It doesn't even want to be identified. So this thing that's, that's eating away at black and brown people can metamorphosize. And it has metamorphosized over the 400 some years that black people have been in this country. It, it shape shifts. Uh, people began to explain away the data. When, when we look at the data and say, no, we're not going to explain away what we're seeing. So, so I will say, yes, not only are the sutures been removed, they're not even been put in place. I don't know what to say to you, Ron. I am speechless, frankly. But I will say this. It stops today. How do we stop it today? What is the medicine? What do we need to do in order to destroy this thing that is effectively destroying society? And when we think about it, it's not just for the benefit of the black and brown communities or the other disenfranchised communities. And they're not just black and brown. There are many other, there are white communities who are suffering in the same way. What do we need to do in order to save the whole beast, basically? Because if we don't treat those parts of us that are being destroyed, we will destroy the whole. There's this wonderful book that was just published. It's called The Sum of Us. And I fully agree with what's being stated. We have to move away from thinking we're in some zero-sum game. We're not. And and what racism has said historically is that we're going to somehow take from white people and give it all to non-white people. That is far from the truth. What we have to come to recognize, to your point, is that racism takes energy away from all of us. It damages all of us. And that's the part that we are going to have to start to face and say, no, we're when we look at restorative justice and when we talk about redistributive justice, we're not talking about a zero-sum game. We're talking about how can we come together? You know, how, how can we build a solidarity quotient that is going to put energy back into the system? The first step is to recognize that racism is a system. It's a system designed to disadvantage one group and advantage another group based on nothing more than this. So we have to think about this, what it is. And I talk about it from a structural and an institutional sense. I don't talk much about interpersonal racism. I don't know what's in a man's heart. I can't get in there. But I can say if we're going to work on this in solidarity, we got to look at structures and institutions that are underpinned by racism. And in order to do that, we have to ask ourselves, how does racism work here? How does it operate in our system? How have we historically dehumanized people? How have we devalued populations? And let's begin to undo that. Let's dismantle all of the structures 
and all of the institutions that we identify that are racist structures and racist institutions, call them what they are and begin to tear them down, begin to build up in solidarity people who want to work together to solve these these problems, as difficult as it may be. And, And I use the metaphor, if I'm injured, if I have a deep injury and I want to heal up, it's going to hurt. Healing hurts. Because if, if it's a cut, like that young man, if it's a burn, let's think about this burn of racism. To get over it, you, you got to tear that burn skin off so that healthy skin can grow in its place. You got to get down deep in a wound and clear out all the necrotic tissue. Take all of the purulence out of it. Clean it out. That hurts. That hurts. But it heals. The hurting leads to healing. And when that healing happens, a scar is left, not as a disfigurement, but as a reminder that I know why that scar is there. And I was able to heal it. And there were people that joined with me. So my wound is healed. And whenever I now see another wound that needs healing, I'll look at mine and know it's possible. We can heal, but we got to confront it. We have to understand it. We have to pull it apart, look deep inside of it. And that means beyond the the four walls of of a healthcare system or a clinic. And that's why I brought up about my uncle 60 miles away. Transportation, housing, employment, schooling, education, income, all of those things we now say social determinants of health. I brought them down to one thing, the stuff that is killing us and begin to heal it. Look at where we're allocating our resources as leaders and executives in healthcare systems and clinics and hospitals and institutions and organizations. How are we allocating our resources? Are the resources going to the places that are most wanted or where they are most needed? And here in the U.S., when we look at how resources allocated, and if I if I look at the Upper East Side of New York or the North Shore in Chicago or the, the areas around the country that are high income areas. They get resources because they want them. And we can apply that in some cases even to the COVID vaccination distribution. But we have to say, yes, we we understand, we hear you. We're not going to take from you, but we have to put resources where they're most needed right now because we're, we're in the business of serving people. We are servants. We are caregivers. And a caregiver goes where the care is needed. We have to begin to face that as a, as a globe. No matter where, and I've seen it every place I've been in the Middle East. Like as I said, I talked to my friends in the UK who, who are wrestling with these same types of issues. So, so that's the place we need to be. And I say, if I wronged you, healing is to say, I'm sorry. One first step to healing, I apologize. Let's reconcile. Why is that so hard for caregivers to say, I apologize? I want to reconcile. I need your help to show me, to walk with me so that I don't make these same mistakes again. So we don't make these same mistakes again. So we don't have to go down that road again. I can't do that without you. And I'm asking your permission. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful uh, writer, Chenoa Kibi, uh, who wrote Things Fall Apart. He says something that goes like this. You cannot enter into my house through your gate. You can't do that. If you want to come into my house, Come through my gate and I'm going to invite you. And when I invite you through my gate, I'm going to say, come into my house. Let's sit and let's break bread. I want to know you. You need to know me. 
I want to love you and you want to love me and we're going to serve each other. We can do that. The bitter root has to be taken out, taken out first. That is global racism. It's got to be removed. It, there's no silver bullet. There's no fairy dust. It's tough, hard work. There will be starts and slowdowns and fits and, and backups. But at this point, we have to keep moving forward. And I will say to, to any brother of mine, I don't care what gender you are, what sexual orientation, what color, ethnicity, religion. If we're on this journey and if you get tired, I'm going to lift you up. If you can't run with me, I'm going to walk with you. If you can't walk with me, we'll crawl together. And But we're going to keep moving forward on this. We, we can't let a moment that can be a movement turn into a sham. That's what we can't do. So that, that tough journey lies ahead of us. I am hopeful and optimistic with what is converging. And part of that catalyst, part of that came out of the over-policing and, and the murder of George Floyd uh, here in the U.S. That will continue. And when you put George Floyd, the pandemic, and the death of black and brown people, the violence against Asian and Pacific Island populations, when all of this is converging, I say, that's my hope, that something has brought us together, that this is converging into a, a movement that will lead to healing, that will lead to reconciliation, that will end up in, in all of us being closer and loving each other more and saying, how can we all be healthy? It's not a zero sum. We all win in this. We have solidarity in this. And, and that's a lot to say, but it's hard work. And I, and I say to people, the other two things it takes is courage. It takes courage. And I say to my white brothers and sisters, you got to talk to each other. It's not enough to say you're my ally. You got to say, I'm anti-racist, right? You got to talk to each other. White folks, you got to talk to each other. Come to your family and talk about this. So, so start that conversation, not just with black and brown people, but with each other. If we're going to move out of this, courage. And if you look at that word, courage, if you look at the Latin root for that word, courage, it's corday. What's corday? Heart. Courage is hard work. So that's when, when, when people say to me, this is too hard, right? This is hard work. And I say to them, no, it's hard work. That's where you find your courage. It's beaten right here. We all have it and we can share it. Let's share that, that hard work that's beating inside of us. It's time. So I'll pause there. You're right. It is hard work. Now I'm thinking about the people who might be listening to you. And amongst the people who will be listening to you are medical students from across the world. And what you're saying is choose wisely. Choose to make a difference. Choose to work in those communities that need you most, no matter what color you are, no matter what race you are, no matter what your orientation of whatever kind. Choose to go there and be with those people because you are actually asking to serve. And the best place to serve is where people need you most. Right. And so that's a difference that we can make today, even if we do not have the power, seemingly have the power to change the politics of what's going on. We can choose to vote with our feet, each of us. And many of us who will be listening to you will choose to vote with our feet because it's the right thing to do. It's what the world needs us to do today is to say, enough, this ends on my watch. It ends now. Yes. 
So, so a couple of things I want to say. As I said, I was first black chief resident at St. Louis University. I left there and went to work in a federally funded, government funded clinic in a low income, predominantly black neighborhood in St. Louis, Missouri. My, my colleagues, all my white colleagues were joining multi-specialty groups. They were going on to do fellowships and, and I don't diminish them at all for that. But you said something that, that resonated because this was the question that I was asked by them and, and by my senior consultants. Ron, you can go anywhere. You finished at the top of your group. Why are you going to North St. Louis to a clinic? My answer was what you just said, because that is where I'm needed. That is where I'm going. One, one senior consultant, white physician said to me, Bron, if you go there, you're ending your career before it starts. And I said, if I don't go there, I won't have a career in the first place because my, my travels from Alabama told me to go where you're needed. That's where I'm needed. So that's, that's where I went. And the same back here in Alabama. So I agree with you on that. So, so the last couple of weeks, I've been sharing this with people because it's just been on my heart. I look back at, uh, and today's the, the one year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And I, I looked back last week at the videotape. I haven't looked at it much, but I looked at it. And, and we know that George Floyd said, I can't breathe. And I tell people, he says something else. He says something else. The first thing he said is mama. And that's a spiritual power to say in mama. But then he said this. Someone said to him, stop fighting. His response was, I'm through. I'm through. So if there are students, whoever's listening, what, what I've said to people last week is be through. And that's what you just said. Be through. Be through with denying that racism exists. Be through with excusing it away. Be through with saying we don't understand it because we need more research. Be through with flawed clinical decision making based on nothing more than how a person looks or how they worship. Be through with that. Look at another way so we can all live. Be through. That's where I am with this. So that means action. Be through with all those other actions, but I will say inaction. So, and I, I say this to people also, inaction is a violent act to not act when you know there's harm and hurt happening right in front of you. That is violence if you don't act. That is violence if you shelter your courage. There's violence if you turn away. There's, a, there's violence if you say, that's not my struggle. Be through with that kind of thinking. Let's embrace each other and think about this in a, in a totally different way. Be through and, and be together. That's where I am with this. Dr. Ronald White, you are an inspiration. You said it better than I could ever say it. You summarize it better than I could ever summarize it. We are through and we are going to make a difference because that's the right thing to do. And for that, we thank you. And we thank you for sharing your journey with us. And for that child whose sutures were taken out, we say, not on my watch. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.